Well, good evening. Don't leave me hanging. Good evening. Thank you. (laughs) Well, this evening we are starting a new series of studies in the book of Job. We'll probably be in this study for about 13 separate studies. There'll be a couple of breaks in between along the way with worship nights and things, but about 13 weeks of study. And we're going to start this evening with an introduction, but also looking at chapter 1. And uh, not a long study, shouldn't be, but there's a lot to digest. And I don't know how many of you have read this book. Uh, Anthony and I were talking about this, I guess it was last week, maybe the week before. And he mentioned that sometimes people have a little of a superstitious approach to this book. Like if somehow you read the book of Job, bad things are going to happen to you. I want to assure you, bad things are going to happen to you whether you read this book or not. Yeah, you thought I said that wasn't going to happen. Well, the truth is, listen, you know, there is a purpose in suffering. God has a purpose in suffering. I don't like it. I don't even want to talk about it. I don't necessarily like to teach it, but the truth is it's important for us to study it. It's important for us to understand God's purposes in suffering. And so as we look at the book of Job, that's really what the book is all about. As we talk about this book, you know, we're going to see, we're going to be introduced to a number of different characters. And, uh, you know, people come to all different conclusions as to why someone is going through suffering. I I know growing up with my Italian-American roots, uh, we always came to the conclusion that if you were suffering, you deserved it. You did something. We could have been one of Job's counselors, I guess. Uh, You did something to bring this on yourself. And so there's a sort of attitude if you're suffering, good, maybe that'll teach you what you need to learn. And you know, it's funny, human beings have different approaches to suffering. Some people believe that no Christian at any time should ever suffer. And I, I think that's a wonderful teaching. It happens to be false, but, you know, the idea that you could go through life without ever experiencing suffering, it sounds wonderful if it were only true. As my, uh, my boss used to say of us, you know, at work, she used to say, listen, if it um, was fun, they wouldn't call it work. And the truth is, if it were heaven, they wouldn't call it earth. This is our plight. This is our experience on the earth. And so Job is really just a poetic book that tries to digest and really think through the concept of suffering and what God's purpose in it might possibly be. Now, many believe that this book was written during the time of David and Solomon. And indeed, it might have been put in writing at that time. We're we're really not sure. There is a similarity of sentiment, language, and composition to the Psalms and to Proverbs. It is a poetical book. But others argue that it was written by Job himself or by someone else in the story, like Elihu, or even by the prophet Isaiah. There are lots of different theories Others argue, and I think there's probably a strong argument for this, they argue that it was written by Moses, who had the ability to read and write. After all, he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, according to Acts chapter 7, verse 22. It's an ancient book. It might easily be the oldest book in the Bible. Now you say, well, what about Genesis? Well, when Genesis was put into writing was during the time that the law was given to Moses. Those accounts had been recorded and compiled in the law. But the book of Job may be the oldest of all the books of the Bible. We really just don't know. A lot of this takes place in the area of Midian. So Moses did have opportunities in Midian. He lived there for 40 years. 
Uh, he had the opportunity for obtaining the knowledge of the related facts. So probably a likely scenario where Moses put it into writing. He is not the author of the book, but put it into writing. Still, the authorship is altogether uncertain. It may be as ancient as time itself. But Job was a historical person. And the localities and the names were real. They're not fictitious. This isn't a, a fantastic or fictional work. It's, it's a, hist- a history that has been recorded and passed down over the centuries, even the millennia. Now, Job probably lived during the time of the patriarch Abraham. So that would be about 2000 to 1800 B.C., before Christ. His story may have been passed down by word of mouth. In fact, it probably was, like much of the early prehistory in the Bible. Uh, passed down by word of mouth for several hundred years until it was put in writing. It is an historical poem. An historical poem. That is, it tells a story, but it also is poetry. And so we can't study it like the Book of Romans. You can't study it like the book of Esther or the book of Revelation or the book of Isaiah. It has to be studied differently. And so what we're going to do, not in the beginning of our studies, not in chapters 1 and 2, but as we get into chapter 3, we're going to start to see long, very flowery poetic language, long sentences and long paragraphs and lots of the same thing being said differently. That's, That's Hebrew poetry. Through those sections, I'll be reading large portions of them and then summarizing, in effect, what is being said. One of the things I want to encourage you to do is to read those chapters on your own. It will help you as we go back over them to really understand what's being said. And we'll dissect it in more of a survey than a line by line. We'll read the entire book, but rather than going over it, you know, verse by verse and a paragraph by paragraph, we'll look at it in sections and summarize what's being said. That's the best way to study this book, in my opinion. Now, it's been said that the book of Job is one of the greatest poems in all literature. It's an instructive narrative in dramatic form. In fact, when I was in high school, we had an elective in our English classes. I went to Montclair High. And uh, as I was there, one of the things we could take was the Bible as literature. And so we studied books of the Bible, including the book of Job, the book of Ruth. Uh, and, and we looked at those books from a uh, standpoint of being literature, not so much scripture. And I learned a lot looking at it that way. It's not the best way to look at it, but it is a way to look at it. And you can learn a lot by studying those books in the Bible that have that, uh, that power to communicate through, in some cases, poetry, in other cases, prose. Well, the book of Job, Victor Hugo said, the book of Job is perhaps the greatest masterpiece of the human mind. Coming from Victor Hugo, that is quite a statement. I call this book, Thomas Carlyle says, I call this book, apart from all theories about it, one of the greatest things ever written. And uh, he also said, there is nothing written, I think, of equal literary merit. And finally, Philip Schaff said, the book of Job rises like a pyramid in the history of literature without a predecessor and without a rival. So people who love literature and poetry look at this book differently than we do, but they look at it with eyes that allow them to see the beauty of it. 
So we're going to try to do a little bit of that. Uh, We're also going to look at the scriptural implications. I want to also say that not everything written in the book of Job is true. What? Pastor Tim, are you saying that there's something written in the Bible that isn't true? Yeah, there's a couple of books like that. I think of Ecclesiastes, where the writer goes through all these different uh, isms, that is, philosophies, and trying to explain life, and then coming to the conclusion that his way of thinking was wrong. So if you isolate just a way of thinking, of course it's not correct. And in the case of Job, there are not only speeches given by Job and God, and there's a narration with a prologue and epilogue, but there's also these speeches by these men who quite literally don't know what they're talking about. So when we get to some of the things they say, it's not true. And then we get to the end of the Bible, or excuse me, end of this book in the Bible, and God says of what Job's friends said that what they said isn't true. So some of the things we'll see are just the philosophies of man, and they throw this at Job to try to explain God's purposes in suffering, and they're just bad guesses, really. They're, they're not correct. So you have to look at this book differently than you might another portion of Scripture. And I hope that that doesn't blow anyone's mind, but you do have to understand who's speaking. For example, in the Scripture, even in the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, you know, when Satan speaks, he speaks, he says things, but he's the father of lies. So even though he's saying something in the Bible, what's recorded in the Bible, because it's Satan speaking and saying it, it isn't true. Or it's bending the truth a little. So you got to be careful when you think, well, every word of the Bible is true. Every word of the Bible is truly the word of God. But depending on who is speaking, it may not be philosophical or scriptural truth. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. It's really important as we study the book of Job. You can't quote the book of Job for your theology. It's not meant to be quoted in that way. Now, it It is a book of poetry, but it's not the kind of poetry that we are accustomed to generally. Its poetry uses what's called parallelism, and it's the echoing of the thought of one line of verse in a second line, which is its partner. So you say something, and then you elaborate on it in the next verse, and the poetry comes from saying the same thing differently. And boy, this really explodes out into whole sections, in some cases chapters, where the same thing is being said differently, but that's the poetry of it in Hebrew poetry, in the Hebrew language. It is one of the grandest portions of the inspired scriptures. It's a storehouse of comfort and instruction. And it is, as some people say, to the Old Testament what the epistle of the Romans is to the New Testament. That it is a shining example of the masterpiece of the inspiration of God's word. It was apparently well known in the days of Ezekiel which is about 600 years uh, before Christ, because in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14, he quotes or mentions Job. Some people think it's a different Job. I don't. I think it's clear he's talking about Job. Uh, It was considered the inspired word of God by our Lord Jesus and his apostles in the New Testament. So there need not be any question about this being the word of God. But as I said, The caveat being, that is the disclaimer being, that not everything that's suggested in this dialogue is true. But God's word is true in that it presents to us the truth of what actually happened. Now, the book is is 
outlined in this way. We start in chapters 1 and 2. We'll just be looking at chapter 1 this evening. We start in chapter 1. This is the prologue, and this has everything to do with Job's testing. This part of the book does not have poetry. It's prose. We're just reading the narrative. It is the prologue. And when we get to the epilogue all the way at the end of the book in chapter 42, verse 7, the same is true. But from chapters 3 all the way through the beginning of chapter 42, it is all poetry. And there's the first part, chapters 3 through 31, which is where Job is sort of falsely comforted by his friends. They're mistaken. They come to the wrong conclusions. And so there's this cycle of debate. Actually, there's uh, three cycles of debate. And then there's the speeches of another man by the name of Elihu, and he has four speeches. And that takes place in chapters 32 through 37. And finally, probably my favorite part of the book, in chapter 38 through chapter 42, verse 6, it's the speeches of God. And he gives two speeches. They're grand speeches. And uh, it's really something, but we'll get there eventually. Finally, when we get to the end of the book, Job's friends are rebuked and Job's life is restored. So it, it, it ends well, but it is a difficult account because to watch someone suffer the way that Job suffers is very difficult. And when you try to make sense of why someone suffers, it really is a challenge to your faith. Some would suggest that when you read a book like this, your faith is going to be challenged. But I'm okay with my faith being challenged as long as my faith is restored and encouraged and built up through the study. We can't just not read it because, oh, it might cause us to question. Uh, You can ask questions of God. Questioning God is a different matter, but asking questions means you'll get answers. So let's look right this evening. Let's look in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And this is course, Job's testing, but it starts with the circumstances of Job's life. Pretty much a straightforward prologue. We read in chapter 1, verse 1, that in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And he had a large number of servants. And he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom a righteous man, a good family, and a great story. Now, the land of Uz is thought to have been along the border between Israel and Arabia. This particular region lies east of the Sea of Galilee, and it's noted for its fertility of soil and its grain, which was also the case during the time of Jesus. It was once thickly populated, but now it's dotted with the ruins of 300 cities. 300 cities. So that's all. this was a, a well-populated area. This was not somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And uh, Job, whose name in Hebrew probably means this because of this book, but also it means literally, he that weeps or cries is hated, is greatly tried or persecuted. And that makes sense given Job's story, but that's what his name means. I think that meaning probably came about as a result of Job's story, his account. But it's an appropriate name. 
And his character was impeccable before God and man. That's what we're told. He was, a, he was a great man. He was a good man. He was a righteous man, not a perfect man. And he never claims to be perfect, but he does claim throughout this book to be righteous and upright in heart. And indeed he was. How about Job's wealth? He was blessed with many children and much wealth, and he was considered the wealthiest man of his day. I was just reading this week that I think Elon Musk just kind of edged out in front again, so now he's the wealthiest man in the world. But some of these very wealthy people, you know, one year they're down a little bit depending on how things go. The next year someone else is the wealthiest, and it goes back and forth. But Job was easily, of that area, one of, if not the, wealthiest man of his day. So that puts things in perspective. A man of character, but a man of great wealth and great blessing. In fact, his family, I mean, they were obviously a loving family. That in and of itself is a great wealth, amen? You can have all wealth and great prestige and honor and reputation, but your family's a mess. And uh, I would say that it's better to have a lot less, be a lot less popular and well-known, and have a loving family. That is probably the most important thing. And he had that too. He was deeply concerned for their spiritual state, as any righteous man or woman might be. And so he acted as the priest of his family, making sacrifices on their behalf. Now, I want to point out that before the law, you had this idea that goes well back to the time of Noah, that you made sacrifices on behalf of your family. You made sacrifices to God. There was no tabernacle. There was no temple. So the priests of the family, the patriarchs of their family, would build a very simple altar. They would sacrifice animals. And this idea of animal sacrifice actually goes way back to the Garden of Eden. Do you remember what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? They realized they were naked. They started to have an awareness of, 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 of sin and awareness of knowledge. And, and they were aware of their nakedness. They hadn't been before. <clears throat> they were living in sort of a, a state of innocence, the way toddlers do when they run around like that. And, you know, what happened next was that after they sinned and they were covering themselves with fig leaves, God covered them with the skins of animals. And if you don't really think it through, you don't realize that was the first sacrifice. When those animals were sacrificed in order to cover Adam and Eve in their nakedness. And so it becomes God implementing sacrifice, the sacrifice of animals, blood sacrifices, in order to cover or atone, that's the word for for cover, atone their sins. And so they were banished from the garden. We know that account, but they were covered with the skins of animals because that implementation of animal sacrifice was God's doing. And then the next thing we see is Cain and Abel. And what does Abel do? His sacrifice was the sacrifice of the flock. And that was pleasing to God. Cain didn't want to go that route. He wanted to offer a contribution. He wanted to give of the fruit of his crops. But, But Abel took of the flock, and that was accepted by God. So you see already this idea of animal sacrifice was well established before the law. Abraham did the same. The other patriarchs did. Noah did the same when they came off of the ark, you'll remember, the sacrifices. So all Job is doing is what all righteous people were doing at that time, whether Jew or not. And as far as we can tell, Job, probably not a Jew or even a Hebrew at this point. So 
as we look at this, understand this concept of something had to die in order to purify you from your sin was already in place. A foreshadowing of Jesus who would come and die for our sins. So that runs straight through the entire Old Testament, going back to the Garden of Eden shortly after, almost immediately after man and woman sinned. So he was the priest of his family. He took upon himself the responsibility to make sacrifices on their behalf. And he didn't even know if they had sinned, but he thought, if they had, let me make this sacrifice on their behalf. Okay, so then we get to the first test. And here is perhaps one of the most upsetting and disconcerting portions of this book. We read in verses 6 through 7. One day the angels, that is the messengers of God, the uh, sons of God, actually the literal translation is the benai Elohim. It means the sons of God. Here it's translated angels, but it means the sons of God, as opposed to the sons of man or daughters of men. So that would be the the Benai Adam or the Benath Adam, this is the Benai Elohim, the sons of God. And so we call them angels, but they encompass more than just angels as we know them, cherubim, seraphim, all creatures, all those things, all those beings that God had created in the heavenly realm. So one day the angels or the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, that is Jehovah. And Satan or the adversary also came with them, and the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And in this we see right away that this idea that the Greeks had of this sort of Satan figure, whether it be Hades or Pluto in the Romans' mind, this god of the dead or this sort of hell figure, uh, sitting on a throne in hell or Hades, ruling over all evil and all the dead, that that's just not even true. Satan is there before the throne of God. He is also going back and forth over the earth. Doesn't say anything about him hanging out in the land of the dead. So I, I want you to, if you think about that, if that's your mindset, if that's how you've approached your concept of Satan, you know, he has the pitchfork and the horns and you know, the tail and the hooves, and he sits on this throne in hell, and that's his realm. If that's your understanding, it, it's not correct. That's a classical mindset that's just not biblical at all. In fact, every time we see Satan in the scriptures, he's either before the throne of God, accusing people, or appearing before the throne of God, or he's on the earth starting trouble. Okay, so just keep that in mind. So this is a disconcerting portion of scripture. How I wish the scripture didn't mention him and he didn't exist, but he does. And we know that from the Garden of Eden, where he was in the garden deceiving and tempting Eve. And then, of course, we know not only Eve, but Adam fell into sin. Let's understand this. Every being in the universe, but specifically the angelic beings, the sons of God, must submit to the Lord Jehovah. They must submit to his authority. Even today, Satan has no choice but to submit to God's authority. This was true in the time of Job. It's true today. Don't think that somehow Satan escaped from like Alcatraz and he somehow got out and God's still trying to find him. He's on the run. He's trying, you know, how are we going to stop Satan from doing all this bad stuff? If only we could catch him, you know. If you have that mindset of Satan, then you're missing it. You really don't understand. God is allowing this. And if God allows Satan 
to go back and forth throughout the earth and appear before the throne of God, there is simply no other way to say this. We have to be okay with that because it clearly is in the will of God. Do I like it? No. But the day will come where it won't be the case anymore. We've been talking about some of these things on Sunday morning in the book of Revelation. But Satan is the Lord's subject. Satan has a high position in heaven. He had one, but he rebelled against God. This we know. It's alluded to in the books of Isaiah and Ezekiel. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Give us an indication that at some point, Satan, who was this anointed cherub that covered the throne of God, rebelled against God. And as we learned in our studies in Revelation, took with him a third of the angels, the other created beings. So that's quite a rebellion, and that rebellion took place before the fall of man in the garden, as indicated in those books of the prophets that talk about this. He was there in the garden of Eden as the serpent, deceiving Eve, so he had already fallen, and he had already rebelled against God. He's described by Jesus in the book of John as a murderer and a liar. He is, in fact, the original sinner the original sinner. As a result, he was cast from his position in heaven. Jesus said in Luke 10, 18, I beheld Satan. He fell from heaven as lightning. That already happened. But though he's a fallen angel or fallen cherub, he still stands before God's presence. The book of Job bears that out. In fact, he shows up in the presence of God in the book of Zechariah in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And as we studied recently in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, We're told that Satan is the accuser of the brothers, the brethren, brothers and sisters, and he accuses them before the throne of God night and day, constantly accusing us before the throne of God. At one point in the future, he will be cast down to earth. But that hasn't happened yet, not not in our understanding, not in our experience, but he will be ultimately cast from God's presence, and that will happen We believe about the middle of that seven years of tribulation called Daniel's 70th week. Again, I refer you to Revelation 12. And then he's going to be bound for a millennium, that is a thousand years, in the abyss, according to Revelation 20, which we'll get to in future studies on Sunday mornings. Finally, he's going to be loosened, he's going to be let loose, only to be subsequently cast into the lake of fire. And we'll get to that in Revelation 20 as well. So if God caught him, if you will, and threw him in a prison and let him out after a thousand years, there is clearly a purpose in God allowing Satan to tempt, deceive, and destroy within his creation. It's true today. It's always been true. It'll be true in the future. So so you need to understand, it's not like... You might imagine like God and Satan sit down and they're playing chess and God has white and Satan has black and you know, you're kind of like trying to figure out who's going to win this battle. It's just not that way. God is in complete control. Satan serves God. Even though he rebels against God, his actions, his plans, the things he chooses to do, God works all things together for good. Even the actions and decisions and rebellions of Satan. That's really hard to imagine, but it's still true. It really is, and we see that here. Satan is accountable to the Lord for his actions. That's why he, in in the book of Job here in verse 7 of chapter 1, has to appear before God. After his fall 
from glory, he became preoccupied with the earth and with mankind, as we know. He was the deceitful serpent that tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and he was cursed by God for his interference with mankind, but still God allowed it, just like God allows sin. He allows us to sin. But the Lord had a specific purpose in allowing all of this, and so we read in verses 8 through 12. In verses 8 through 12, we read, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread out throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And then the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And of course, this really disturbs us when we consider that God is... Yes, he has a hedge around us. That's encouraging. But that he can let that down at will and allow Satan to afflict us is disturbing. It's deeply disturbing. We have to go through sort of hoops of fire to try to understand why this would happen, and thus the book of Job. The entire book wrestles with this concept. What is God's purpose in suffering? And so that message there of Satan, it just goes to show you, What is Satan ultimately after? Our destruction. What is God ultimately after? Worship and and praise from us and a relationship with us. And yet suffering has a part within his great plan. The Lord describes Job as a model servant to the adversary and the accuser of mankind. For that reason, I hope God never brags on any of us. Right? I mean, think about it. That's the last thing any of us really want, right? But that's what happened here. God was sort of discussing how righteous Job was. And Satan questioned Job's reverence as the, just a response to God's blessings. Well, of course, he honors you. He, he worships you. He serves you. you. You do nothing but bless him. Now, Satan means adversary, literally. And the word devil means an enemy or a false accuser. And he ever seeks to slander God to man and man to God. He wants to disrupt the relationship that mankind has with its creator. That's his goal. And that's what he works so hard at. And deception is one of his chief tools, as we talked about on Sunday morning, this last Sunday. (coughs) He accused Joshua, the high priest of Israel, Right in the Lord's presence in Zechariah chapter 3, which I mentioned already. He accused him. And you'll see that if you read that. He constantly accuses each of us, as we've said, before the throne of God. He seeks to prevent men from being saved by perverting the gospel. And as the God of this world system, not the earth, but the world system, he blinds men and he takes them captive at his will, according to Paul's writings. So a very powerful being, yet held in check indeed checkmate by God himself. And if God chooses to allow him to afflict or whatever, go after someone who is righteous or unrighteous for that matter, it's totally within his sovereignty to do so. It doesn't make God evil. 
It means that God allows all things to work together, including evil, for our good. And that's really a difficult understanding to come to, and that's, again, what this book is all about. So, Satan challenged the Lord to test God, or excuse me, test Job, by removing his protection and his many blessings. And so the Lord, in his sovereignty, had already predetermined to test Job in this way. This was already part of the plan. It's not as if all of a sudden Satan convinced the Lord to bring tragedy into Job's life. This was already God's plan. And the Lord allows evil spirits to work, but only according to his will. We saw that in 1 Kings 22. So this is not something that we should be uncomfortable with, and yet we are because we don't like to think of our circumstances in this way. You know, God sort of allowing Satan to come after us. And yet, has anyone here this evening, maybe even within the last week, felt that God let that hedge come down just a little bit and that they were attacked or perhaps uh, affected or afflicted by Satan? I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this, so God must allow it, and indeed, he does. Now, the Lord specifically allowed Satan to do some rather awful things to Job and to his family. And let's read it in verses 13 through 19. We pick it up there. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off, and they put their servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky, so it would be lightning, and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off, and they put the servants to the sword. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they, were, they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Wow. Notice how Satan let one person survive to bring that news. Satan was granted authority over the enemy forces, over forces of nature. That's rather disturbing, isn't it? He moved Sabaeans to steal 500 oxen and donkeys and kill all but one of the servants. He used a lightning storm. Yeah, Satan used the lightning storm because God allowed it to destroy Job's 7,000 sheep. And again, all but one of the servants. And then he moved a group of people called the Chaldeans. By the way, Abraham was a Chaldean. But the Chaldeans came and they stole Job's 3,000 camels and again killed all but one of the servants. And finally, the worst of all, a windstorm, which again, Satan was given control over, came and destroyed Job's children and killed all but one of the servants. Now, Satan is and has always been a destroyer. He is not a creator. He is a destroyer. David understood this. He understood that he sought to destroy men. Talks about it in Psalm 109, verse 6. Satan even provoked David to sin against Israel by numbering the people through pride in 1 Chronicles 21. He tempted the Lord Jesus 
to sin. He wasn't successful, but he tried. He tempted the Lord Jesus to sin against the Father. He bound a woman in the, in the Gospel of Luke. He bound a woman in sickness for 18 years, and he's afflicted many others. He possessed Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. He desired to destroy Peter as well. He wanted to sift him like weed, according to Luke's Gospel. And he convinced Ananias in the book of Acts to try and deceive the early church. And Paul, my goodness, Paul has so much to say, identifies Satan in his writings as the chief adversary of the church, not just the people of God, Israel, but the church. But when we get to the next few verses here, look at verses 20 through 22. At this, that is all of that destruction, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. That is, he didn't blame God. He didn't blame God at all. He responded first by mourning. He mourned the loss of his family. And then by worshiping God. Have you perhaps had the opportunity to attend a funeral of a saint, someone who loved God? And whether they died tragically or in their old age, when you celebrate the life of a saint and mourn their passing, it's very much like this. You're mourning their loss, but you're worshiping God as well. You can do that, you know. You can mourn the loss of someone you love and still worship God. Some people can't get past that. They blame God. Job worshiped God. And he recognized that all he had in this life was a gift from God. And that God was in complete control. Even in this moment, Job understood that. He acknowledged that God reserved the right to take away his many blessings. And he praised the Lord because of his person, who he is, not the result of his blessings. If you praise God when you're blessed, what happens when you suffer tragedy or loss or difficulty or trials or persecutions, which were promised in the scriptures in the New Testament as Christians, as followers of Christ? That's why your faith has to be in something other than your circumstances. It has to be a faith in God. But the Lord tested Job by allowing Satan to bring destruction, but Job passed the test. Satan had failed to shake Job's faith. Now the book's not over, and we'll pick it up again next week in chapter 2. But as we look at Job's example in chapter 1, may we be reminded that we can suffer loss, and indeed we will in this life, We can suffer loss and difficulty and trials and all types of persecutions and challenges and still worship God. May that be our hearts as we go through difficult times. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you, not for suffering, but in suffering we thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us. That you work through these things. That, like Job, our end can be so much better than our beginning. But we have to believe and we have to trust. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit in great measure. We ask that you give us the ability to trust you. 
and not give up and not lose our faith when things don't make sense or challenges come or difficulties are in front of us. May we trust you with our lives. May we say, as Job did, that we came into this world with nothing and that's how we're going out. That everything we have of blessing is a gift from you. And regardless of whether you give or take away, we should be praising your name. May we do likewise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.